0: Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. Today I am interviewing Sinauth Suranon Ranan of University of Wisconsin and a fellow with the Rachel Carson Center for the Environment and Society. Sinauth and his co-author Lee Kleinman have written a powerful, clear-eyed and rock-solid assessment of how Public agriculture universities, many entomology departments, and beekeeper leaders work hand in glove with pesticide industry interests, and as a result, keep our food and landscape crops awash in bee and pollinator killing poisons. The insecticide industry didn't do it alone. They have many helpers. The insecticide industry does not want you to read this book. Vanishing Bees is a whodunit. Welcome, Sainath.
1: It's my pleasure to be speaking with you, Terry.
0: Thank you. Well, why don't we just jump right in? I've read a lot of information about pollinator declines. I've been interested in this for over 10 years now. And your book instantly grabbed me because you dig into an issue that is so complex so confusing and you break it down into easily understood parts. You helped me to articulate a problem and create an awareness of the different players that I see as, um, as the reason why pollinators are, are in decline throughout the world. So I just wanted to thank you for doing that work and we're going to just jump right over why pollinators are important. My audience already knows so the complexity of the issues are fascinating to me. Can you just talk about the different issues that your book breaks down? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you rightly point out the complexity of the issues around pollinator decline. And the book tries to make the point that this is not simply an environmental or ecological or biological issue, but it's always already a social and political issue that these are all connected. And that's where the inherent complexity of pollinator decline comes in. Meaning that how we know what we know and don't know about why honeybees or other insect pollinators are dying is deeply connected with a particular history and a particular politics around relationships between beekeepers, farmers, scientists, governmental regulators, pesticide manufacturers, and parts of civil society. So these are all interconnected. And as soon as we start separating the issue and looking, looking at it as just a biological issue, say why honeybees are dying, let's study, the, uh, do experiments with bees and figure out why bees are dying. All of that is important and necessary, but not sufficient is, is the bigger point of the book that we also need to look at the social context and the historical context that has led us to this place where honeybees and not just honeybees, but other insect pollinators are dying at alarming rates.
0: So let's go into the history in just a, a moment. If we could break down a little bit, why honeybees and the narrative around honeybees that has the microphone that you, you hear on NPR, you hear Uh, all the time reported why it is so narrow so you you explain it in your book that institutions and and land-grant universities focus on some things but they don't look at others and the research is what I find fascinating because it often just looks at one thing which is not reflective of what a honeybee's life is like in the real world can you talk about that what we look at and what we don't look at in our academic studies
1: Sure. So, I mean, here again, we are opening up a whole complex world involving various kinds of scientists situated in various institutions of higher education and governmental institutions and private uh, industries. And their interests and their agendas and their livelihoods also matter in the ways in which they look at particular issues. Uh, and so in the book, along with my co-author, Daniel Kleinman, kind of explored the history of entomology as it became uh, a professional field of practice, uh, a discipline, an intellectual research field. Uh, and we found that, you know, at, at least in the United States, you know, entomology developed historically as a science of insecticide development of figuring out how to come up with the most effective chemical insecticides to kill insect pests. Uh, and the whole, and the history of this is one can imagine starting with the ascendancy of agricultural science in the late 19th century and sort of the uh, the institution of the Hatch Act and the beginning of land-grant universities uh, and the setting up of uh, agricultural experimental stations where agricultural scientists and entomologists uh, became uh, the people to go to uh, to talk about issues for farmers. So if farmers face crop issues, they went and talked to the scientists um, and entomologists in this context um, hunkered down on their professional positions and livelihoods by offering to farmers chemical solutions for their crop problems.
0: So they viewed things through a pesticide and through a pest control lens.
1: That's how entomology developed in the United States. And so even the very understanding of uh, behavior or the life cycle or the development of particular insects was all focused around how can we understand the biology of this insect to then target particular chemicals uh, at particular stages of that insect's life to kill it.
0: And you just answered a question that has plagued me for years. You articulated both the question and the answer. Which is why current bee research focuses on the mite as a pest uh, issue, as opposed to focusing on bee health in terms of good nutrition, you know, chemical-free nutrition. I find that there's a disparity, a massive amount of information regarding mites that doesn't doesn't compare to the, the lack of information about nutrition.
1: Right. Uh, and it, there is also, uh, let's just say, more of an availability of institutional resource apparatus to come up with chemical solutions that then mm-hmm. make, make the path of going toward uh, the mighty sides uh, uh, much more, uh, let's just say, profitable and uh, uh, enabling than other routes of research.
0: Hmm. So, you know, you're an academic, I'm not I'm going to just say something. Go ahead. (laughs) It just seems to me that there is no possible way that the pesticide industry would would not have gained control of the beekeeping narrative. You know, decades ago, knowing that pesticides kill insects like they do, and wanting to make the problem anything other than their product. And that's just the way I see it. And you don't have to, you know, jump in there. I know that you're an academic, but it just seems that's that's a given the industry would have controlled the narrative and I see them having successfully done that
1: uh, I more or less agree uh, and the book really the book really kind of focuses on certain a certain mechanism of how agrochemical industry gained control historically mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the focus in the media, Uh, has been, as you probably know, on uh, sort of more uh, conspiratorial, direct uh, mechanisms of manipulation and fraud and suppression, uh, sort of along the lines of tobacco industry, uh, Mm. you know, uh, suppressing research or intimidating scientists. And there are instances of that happening in the honeybee case as well. Yes. Mm But along with Daniel kleinman what the book what i'm arguing in the book is that apart from those direct manipulatory tactics agrochemical industry has also benefited and leveraged and used just everyday mundane science to go about keeping its chemicals on the market in the United States okay just boring mundane genuine science and by going to the back rooms and going to the journals and going Going to the editorial boards and going to the academic entomological conferences, Bayer scientists, Monsanto scientists, when Monsanto was Monsanto, were in a sense active colleagues of academic entomologists and actively doing research in these arenas around pesticides and bees and shaping standards around what gets counted and how something gets counted as toxic or not. And so, so in that long durée of uh, uh, just mundane science, agrochemical industry has also indirectly shaped how we know what we know about why bees are dying. And so that's the, the, the tack that, that the book takes, is that, yes, probably direct manipulations are happening, but we are arguing that what's been not so much looked at and we should be looking at is just everyday mundane scientific practices and standards and how those... Get shaped uh, by chemical industry in ways that even very conscientious scientists who don't uh, uh, partake uh, 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 profits from uh, agrochemical industry will then take up those standards because those just become the prevalent standards in the field.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: I can give you an example like LD50.
0: Explain what that is just really quickly because a lot of people don't know what LD50 means.
1: Lethal dose 50, it, it's a very common toxicological standard that measures the dose of a particular chemical uh, at which half of the exposed population of individuals dies. Within a certain period, it can be, it's usually 48 to 96 hours. So
0: So it's a, it's a measurement, it's a gauge uh-huh. of, of how toxic Correct. a product is.
1: Correct, exactly. And it's a, so it's a measurement of acute toxicity of a chemical. Uh, And you see here that it's that the uh, that's the LD50 LD50 became like a one of the major standards used in insecticide development. And as you can see here, the focus of this standard is on, first of all, killing, as opposed to all kinds of other effects that can happen on exposed individuals, right? You're just looking at how many died, and you're looking at a very short-term effect. How many died within 48 to 96 hours, okay? And so that gives you then a, a certain sense of how toxic the chemical is. But these sorts of standards, like the LD50 and other such standards that entomological sciences certainly help in developing. Uh, were very much focused on uh, measuring killing and focused on short-term effects. So long-term, subtle, sublethal, interactive effects of one chemical with another chemical, none of that really got looked at.
0: Which is the more important part. They're looking at individual one chemical strength to kill as opposed to looking at synergistic effects.
1: Correct. And a lot of that has started happening now. There are are scientists who are looking at synergistic effects. But all of this is being done with the same set of standards that Mm -hmm. were developed early in the 20th century or or during uh, various parts of the 20th century. So the main thing here is that, yes, synergistic interaction studies are happening now more and more. And as scientists, and the public uh, begin to push uh, regulators and industry to start looking at those interactions. That said, interaction studies are very hard to do because they're based on the standards and the designs that are, were focused on single chemical studies. So the same designs and standards are now simply being adopted to look at synergistic interactions, which is a completely different beast, okay. in my opinion, and needs needs to be uh, coming up with new different kinds of designs and standards.
0: Yeah, yeah. So looking at the industry hold on academic standards, they're very interested in keeping things at the same level. And it's hard to break out from infrastructure. You build an infrastructure, everything sort of takes place within the infrastructure, and then getting out of the infrastructure and getting people to look at something from a different perspective, becomes very difficult because everybody's speaking the same language from within that infrastructure. Absolutely. And so in order to create a new um, standard of measurement, we'd have to look at it from a completely different angle, which is, in my opinion, from healthy standpoint, like how to keep something healthy as opposed to how to kill something Absolutely. from the pest control lens. Agreed. And um, yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the history because I understand the present based on what happened and what was significant in the past. And the history of land-grant universities and how they came around to be agricultural universities and entomology departments is fascinating to me because what you spell out in your book is that, let's just go back as far as the 1930s, that farming was becoming more industrial, using more chemicals, The farmers started to notice that what they'd previously taken for granted, native pollinators, Mm -hmm. were now gone because of the chemicals. So they created the migratory beekeeping system, in my opinion, as a band-aid. I agree. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Actually, my colleague, Tony Weiss, who's who's in Canada and an excellent political ecologist, talks about this in terms of biophysical contradictions and overrides.
0: Okay. Tell me what that is. I don't understand what that is. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so a biophysical contradiction in the sense that as uh, farm sizes increased astronomically and decreased in the diversity of what products they made, so mm-hmm. increased specialization, becoming monocrop uh, farms, large monocrop farms create a biophysical contradiction, mm-hmm. which is how do you irrigate this thing? How do you? How do you even uh, keep? Plants of the same single variety growing all across this huge terrain. Ecologically, it's a contradiction. Okay, it's a biophysical contradiction. Uh, how do you keep uh, insects away from and diseases away from this kind of a monocrop? It's like an invitation for uh, soil uh, depletion, for for a certain kind of pollution. Yeah, and so and this so this bio contradiction uh, that a monocrop is then is inviting a set of overrides, which are what you said, band-aids, yeah? One of those overrides being pesticides. So farmers uh, start putting uh, large amounts of pesticides on their crops to deal very quickly with the insect problems that that they invited by having such a monocrop, yeah? And so pesticide override, pollination override. So the small farms that were easily pollinated by local native pollinators uh, are uh, which have now become, quote-unquote, clean, big monocrops, meaning removed all the hedgerows, removed the various small places where uh, a, lo- uh, a wild bee nest could have existed. Uh, you've, take, you've taken the, quote-unquote, weeds out, and you've created a situation where pollination is not happening, and so you then come up with another band-aid, which is you bring beehives large amounts of beehives, you rent them from beekeepers to do this pollination, right? The pollination override in turn creates another set of contradictions within the beekeeping industry where uh, basically trucking around beehives in large amounts and putting them in the same places well invites invites the spread of diseases and all kinds of things. And that then leads to beekeepers becoming pesticide applicators. They start putting miticides, (laughs) their beehives. And so that then leads to another, that's another override there. And so you see, there's a whole set of contradictions and overrides accelerating that are created in the system
0: all the while not dealing with the main problem which is overuse of chemicals and monoculture or monoculture is probably the the main issue um yeah and then pest overuse of pesticides follows that and then then because what i when i read this in your book i was like yes of course what the farmers had previously always just taken for granted, were gone with the onset of, I guess it would have been DDT at that time. Creating the migratory beekeeping industry should never have happened. And I know it's hard to go back in history and say what should or what could have happened. But if you look at the power that the beekeeping industry has and the hold it has on the narrative of what's happening in in the decline of the insect world... It's all based on a false narrative and and a false solution. They don't even speak to the real issues.
1: Can you say more about that? What do you mean by false narrative?
0: Well, from where I stand, I'm a boots on the ground beekeeper. I go to all the meetings, talk to people in, in beekeeping associations. I go several steps further and I attend pesticide meetings in Sacramento for the state of California agricultural practices and uh, the pesticide meetings uh, with the Department of Food and Ag. And um, so what I see at these meetings is well-placed beekeeper association leaders dealing with the pesticide industry in terms of regulations and policy in California and I've never not once seen them in any way oppose the pesticide industry agenda. So they're partners. They work as partners because they are partners. The migratory beekeeping system is a partnership with uh, monoculture agriculture. And even though monoculture agriculture is depleting natural resources wherever it occurs, the beekeepers associations and uh, voice always... Um, aligns with the monoculture interests and that trickles down that mentality and uh, narrative that comes out of the beekeepers associations always trickles down to like I said boots on the ground so you're talking to another beekeeper and all they talk about is pest control they do not talk about health and it doesn't matter if you're a natural beekeeper or you're a chemical treating beekeeper. Um, and we can talk about that difference later, they are still, beekeepers are still primarily speaking about mites and not about nutrition. You know, I'm a mom. I know that if you feed your child healthy food, they're likely to thrive. And if you feed your child um, unhealthy food, they're likely to be sick and need all sorts of pharma to keep them going and i feel like that's the same thing that's happening in the beekeeping world beekeepers are just dealing with struggling animals they're not even talking about giving them organic food yeah so yeah that's how it that's how it translates to to my ear from where i i sit and again i'm not an academic but i am really active in this and i i've gone to so many meetings and i've seen Um, the California State Beekeepers Association vote directly with Bayer just on a simple labeling bill in Sacramento, just a labeling bill?
1: Okay. Well, the migratory beekeeping interests have come to uh, be, you know, uh, yoked with, tied to big farming interests. Um, The contracts that uh, uh, beekeepers are looking to get uh, the rental contracts from farmers are mainly the pollination contracts and that's driving the beekeeping industry in fact it's the almond pollination uh, that's a big uh, revenue getter for the for the. US beekeeping industry and so in fr- seeing from that like yeah it makes some sense that uh, migratory beekeepers interests are are aligned to some degree, with uh, farmers' interests. That said, beekeepers, I've also heard this complaint from uh, migratory beekeepers, that they have always been treated as if they're the stepchild of agriculture, that they are always treated in a shabby way as a second-class sort of entity, as dispensable in a sense. Uh, So there seems to be this fear that if a beekeeper complains to a farmer about their pesticide usage or says something, that they would lose the contract, and that there are always enough beekeepers around who would be willing to then come and take that contract and do the pollination for that farmer. What's your sense about that? Do Do you hear that too?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I just read a really great interview with Dave Hackenberg. I'm sure you know him big commercial beekeeper, probably one of the biggest in the country. And he outlines that specifically in the interview. And and this is probably the very first interview where he has called out um, pesticides and neonics, especially. And he says that too, that they're treated as the redheaded stepchild historically. And I think that's interesting because, you know, I often like to... um, watch what people do as opposed to listen to what they say to really find out who they are and what they're doing. And that disregard for pollinators from our food industry is so telling to me as to why we're at the situation where we are right now. I, I personally believe biomass, which is flying insects, are down by seventy five percent. And I, I place that, I put that right on the on the doorstep of the pesticide industry and how they've run our food system. And disregarding Pollination, like they do, and disregarding the importance of native pollinators is the mentality that I fight against all the time. I don't understand why they don't see the whole picture, and I guess I do understand more and more why um, they've gotten away with it.
1: If I can speculate a little bit here, and this is not part of the book per se, but I think part of the reason why they don't seem to understand or ignore the facts is from a certain faith or belief in technological fixes. That, yes, there are problems, but we'll fix them. We'll be able to come up with new technological solutions that will fix those problems. See, haven't we done that before? And look, we have such a great technological scientific apparatus, and we can do that again.
0: Interesting. Even though the whole apparatus is flawed, because it's based on on the opposites of what is is true natural laws. Like you said it earlier, you said they call conventional beekeeping or conventional agriculture clean, because it is. It's like you look at it, and it's clean. All the um, there's no debris. There's no places for natives to nest. Everything's been sprayed clean. But they also call organic dirty, and that's like here, here in the Bay Area of San Francisco, we've got an organic farmer called Dirty Girl, and it's like, and that's where I learned about this that the the system calls one thing clean and the other dirty. So they've owned, you know, owning the narrative of something is. Is critical in developing a story.
1: No, the, the the really powerful part of this is the owning the narrative uh, hasn't occurred without a struggle. That that they're actually also constantly struggling to maintain that narrative, mm. uh, and that maintenance of that narrative then requires active intervention, intimidation, and manipulation in various parts of the system to keep the narrative going because that narrative wouldn't exist without a struggle and there are elements, important elements that we need to recognize as you yourself are part of who are uh, trying to come up with alter narratives with different narratives of how life, how food, how uh, health ought to look like
0: So tell me about that. Go into depth about that. Can you give some examples? I'll just give you an example. I saw exactly what you just said in Sacramento, a Department of Food and Agriculture meeting. It was a committee meeting, and one of the committee members didn't know that he was miked. And he leaned over to a woman sitting next to him and said, so I was at Eco Farm this past January. They've got a new name. Called regenerative agriculture. And he was joking. He goes, We're going to have to get ahead of this one. And they were laughing about it. So, what you just described is exactly what I saw that day and heard that day that they see how important it is to have a label and a descriptor and how they need to get ahead of that to weaken it, if possible. And that was Department of Food and Agriculture meeting about pesticides.
1: I can give you another example. I mean, these are, there are probably examples proliferating every day of the active maintenance of a certain kind of narrative, right? And so um, the quota of the book talks about uh, what Daniel Kleinman and I try to put together as a sort of um, bottom-up alternative collaboration involving beekeepers of various economies of scale with growers of various economies of scale, various scientists including ecologists uh, and nonprofit um, uh, policymakers and getting them together and seeing if they could come up with a different way of understanding complexities of bee health and these involved uh, a series of deliberations um, which I've I facilitated, or my colleague Kleinman facilitated. Uh, And in the very first deliberation, um, one of the monocrop, large a large monocrop fruit grower, cranberry producer from Wisconsin, got her tail up. She got very emotional in that meeting because some of the beekeepers in the group were precisely talking about the problems with clean farming for their bees and the use of pesticides, uh, and especially new nicotinoids. She got very defensive. And she started questioning the science around that and asking for more evidence-based narratives about the connections between neonicotinoids and bees, and then started talking about how her livelihood is dependent on these chemicals. She got emotional, and you know what? She never came back to the deliberation. She left, okay? And the next thing I know, I'm getting a nudge from one of the extension entomologists from the university who was also part of these deliberations. This person, the cranberry producer, went and complained to her. And so about, about there being this kind of a, a study being done, which is biased against pesticides and biased against growers and that something needs to be looked into. I heard this and I said, well, please come to these meetings and you'll see what kind of discussion we're having. And after which she started coming. But you can see here how this narrative gets maintained. The extension entomologist appointment is funded through the fruit industry, various fruit industries in in Wisconsin.
0: And is this a land grant university?
1: University of Wisconsin, yeah. Madison, yes. That uh, extension entomologist is answerable to the various fruit industry representatives, including this fruit producer. Uh, In a way, she's uh, an academic representative of the fruit industry in the university.
0: Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. So that plays out in every land grant university and you probably in that experience saw one end of how the industry controls the narrative um, the way that I see it here in California with um, UC Davis is they uh, spend a great deal of energy, time and money talking about what the decline of bees is due to. They'll talk about mites. It keeps people saying that it's not pesticides, it's not neonics, it's not fungicides, it's not systemics, it's mites. Because they're all just talking about one thing. And um, that can only have come from the industry that it's protecting. You know, if you look back at how things are the way they are, it protects itself. The industry is protecting itself. And the best way to do that is to create a deflection tactic.
1: I agree. Um, And one of the the actually deflecting tactics that goes along with the mites narrative is the complexity narrative, right? So because things are complex, oh yeah, honeybee, die-offs are complex, there are multiple factors involved. Yeah, chemicals are there too, but also mites are there. And so there's uncertainty around which one is more or less uh, important and influential. And so um, that's another deflecting tactic away from chemicals.
0: So that's like uh, the product being confusion.
1: Uncertainty and confusion, yep.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that too. Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, thought leaders. Uh, most people don't understand the complexities and the weirdness within the beekeeping world. I'm sure you know a lot more about it now <laughs> uh, than you did before you started. <laughs> sure. So um, in the beekeeping world, and there's basically a civil war, finger pointing and blaming as to what's causing the problem with bees. And very little of that finger pointing is uh, toward pesticides. It's all at each other and how we manage bees and we're the problem. You know, you're the problem. So there's a divide between natural beekeeping, which is basically the way the ancients practiced it. You know, it's not about driving your bees. It's more about following your bees. And then there's the other the other hand that is that believes in chemical treatment for mites and um can we talk a little bit about the scientific beekeepers i think that they're self-anointed self-appointed thought leaders that's what they call themselves scientific beekeepers did you have experience with them in your in your research i know you do mention it a lot in your book which i loved
1: yeah i I spoke to uh randy oliver who runs scientificbeekeeping.com and is a one of the, I would say the most uh, prominent scientific beekeeper uh, in the United States. I'm uh, very, very highly respected, uh, I should say. Uh, you know, the, the, for example, the Dane County Beekeepers Association, I'm, which uh, is located uh, headquarters in Madison. Uh, several of its members are uh, ardent fans of uh, uh, Randy Oliver's um, writings. Um, uh, and then there's others uh, like Pete Borst, um, who also are uh, active on the BL listserv, uh, but also are also writing uh, in American Bee Journal and uh, sometimes in Bee Culture uh, as well. So um, I spoke to some of the most prominent voices among scientific beekeepers about their views regarding the, the broad honeybee declines and, and colony collapse disorder in, in particular. And I, as uh, readers uh, will gather from the book, you know, uh, uh, we are able to kind of see what drives their understandings of bee health uh, as being um, a sort of simplistic notion of science. Randy, as somebody who would call himself a data guy, uh, he'd say, "I'm, I'm a data guy," uh, and
0: uh, a what? Oh, a data, data, guy. Guy. And, yeah, data and, guy.
1: And the data speaks for itself. He's, uh, he's a, he's a really a, uh, a firm believer uh, in, um, in science, but in a uh, in a particular kind of science. Yeah, uh, because science itself is there is no one science, right? There are sciences, uh, and he's uh, he's very much. Uh, a faithful devotee, let's just say, of, uh, of a very particular kind of science that we outline in the book, uh, which we call control-oriented science, which is about isolating uh, one thing from everything else and then looking at that one thing in isolation in a, in a very controlled manner. And that's very valuable, don't get me wrong. That has its values, and its limits. The problem is that some of the limitations of that science are lost among some of these scientific beekeepers. Or it may be that they, that they are aware of those limitations, but they uh, use those limitations selectively. I uh, We don't write about this in the book, but if you go and look at DL, uh, just get a... Um, Uh, sense of the discussion, some of the stormy discussions that go around neonics there, when interestingly when uh, and I have not done a quantitative analysis of this, but this is simply an anecdote here, that that, uh, when there are scientific articles coming out uh, about relevant doses of neonicotinoid uh, shown to cause um, certain harm in honeybees, those articles are very amazingly scrutinized and taken apart by some of these scientific beekeepers and the delimitations of, of those uh, studies. But then, as a, a similar <laughs> uh, uh, taking apart of studies that show that neonics are not causing harm, that the neonics are rather safe, th- these same characters don't seem to approach those studies with the same set of scrutinizing lenses you see what i'm saying yeah and so that a sense of bias seems to come up uh, towards those studies that are showing not much harm by neonics versus those studies that portray some harm i don't know what to make of that i'm not going to suggest or imply that there's any conspiratorial intent there, I am not sure about that. There may be, and there may not be, uh, but what the book sh- talks about uh, uh, is how their narrative is framed around a belief, a faith in this one kind of science, which, uh, as the book shows, this control-oriented kind of science that became established in entomology, Uh that it has severe limitations when we want to look at uh, things in synergies and over long term.
0: And the same science that gives them the results that they they want to find, it seems. And that's just my that's my speculation
1: on that. And, and in this sense, they, they are aligned with the chemical industry.
0: Yes, yes. And again, this goes back. And again, this is uh, this is my opinion, not yours. Um, but it just seems to me that in order for the chemical industry to have control over the beekeeping world, they'd have to find people that are going to carry their message that pesticides are not a problem for bees. And so this is the main narrative that I hear from thought leaders that typically are affiliated tightly with land-grant universities across the country. So University of Maryland, um, with Be informed Partnership, um, University of of Guelph in Canada, um, UC Davis, Uni of Florida, they all say the same thing, that pesticides are a tiny problem, not the major problem. The major problem is something else, is mites. And so this deflection tool, once again, coming out of the university system is incredibly powerful and, uh, and drives confusion amongst people on the street as to what's going on with bees.
1: I agree. And the worrying part is that these dynamics, I think, are intensifying because uh, public universities are um, less and less able to rely on state governments on the on, on public funding so uh, in fact public universities like the so-called public university of wisconsin-madison is actually only around 13 percent of its funding Whoa, comes from 13?
0: the state Ooh.
1: yeah a, a lot of it's fun 13 yeah uh, and a lot of it is federally funded through grants, mm-hmm. but then, mm-hmm. yes, there's more and more industry fundi- funding. The troubling part is this, uh, Terry, that if you want to go and find out as a public citizen how much of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences research is funded through industry work, you cannot find out.
0: I can't find it. I've totally Googled that. <laughs> For just UC Davis, yeah. It's
1: behind closed walls. It's behind firewalls. What should be public information is behind firewalls that we don't have access to.
0: So this changed in the mid-80s, correct? That's what I read in your book, that the um, you, what used to be federally funded and became industry funded changed in the mid-80s under the first George Bush, I believe. <sighs>
1: Well, since Reagan, uh, really, and, and I mean, even before Reagan, the, the train had started, so to speak. Reagan simply sped up the train with neoliberalization new agendas With that, for example, the Bay-Dole Act in the ni- uh, in early 1980s allowed for, for you to, as an academic, you could spin off a private firm uh, or intellectual property from federally funded research okay so the bay dole act then allowed for in a sense um, uh, an an accelerated sort of um, privatization of public research in the name of commercialization and benefits to society the idea was that if you if you make if you make the path to commercialization of research products uh easier then those Beneficial products of research would come faster to the market and thus to people.
0: And then knowing how these industries, and this is not just the chemical industry, this is likely the, uh, the you know, all of the big, big of industries that have. Far-
1: big pharma.
0: Big pharma. Big pharma included. I'm just going to say tobacco. Um, yeah, they've yeah. Essentially, and the sugar industry, same playbook. The sugar industry is exactly the same. So what they do is uh, they also work really hard to create the legislation, own the policy makers through their lobbying. And essentially 40, 50 years down the road, you've got academic structures, again, infrastructure that is informed and um, the standards created to serve the industries that are funding the system so to me that's the that's the smoking gun right there (laughs) there's so many smoking guns but um you know that's just how things are the way that they are is through industry control uh of our entire system and and uh, you know and again this is not something that i'm not going to put words in your mouth but it just seems to me like this is a major abuse of power that is um probably one of the biggest, because we all eat food. It's not like, you know, we all smoke cigarettes or eat sugar. But we all eat food. And um, for an industry that creates poison for a living to control our food choices, I see that as the biggest abuse of power, bigger than Harvey Weinstein.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And people recognize this, right? You have bear, bear, that's Poisoning our, our food, then providing, selling medicines, to quote unquote cure the people who got sick from its poisoned food.
0: So to control um, the narrative and to you know basically control power, these industries would have had to have sought out a certain type of person. I noticed in your book you you called a certain. Uh, beekeeping mentality libertarians. And to me, what libertarian means is people who do not want any regulation. That's what they are in this country, right? They're libertarians politically and policy-wise. They don't want any regulation. They don't want the government telling them what they can and can't do. And in terms of um, pesticide regulation, they really fight that. And I find that interesting that so many of the scientific beekeepers are of a libertarian ilk. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. I I mean, with the libertarian variety of uh, beekeepers that we uh, write about, uh, Kleinman and I, in this book, we are talking about those who are contending that individual initiative uh, is what matters, that the environment is inalterable, you can't change government you can't change the environment. All you have is yourself and how you deal with your bees. And so if you're a smart beekeeper, you will deal with your bees in ways that other foolish beekeepers don't know, and they will go out of business and you're going to profit because your business is going to expand. So it's, it's a very individual-based narrative that also then relies on chemicals and antibiotics and pollen patties and all of that. And nutritional supplements to keep your bees going because the idea is that, well, we live in this inalterable chemical environment and you just got to deal with it.
0: Right, right. It's polar opposite to the way that I see things, that change can happen if enough people want it. So I find the libertarian mentality of beekeepers uh, disarming because people give automatic environmental credibility to a beekeeper. People just give them that blanket approval. As soon as they say they're a beekeeper, They, people kind of get, oh, that's amazing, you're trying to save the world, when the opposite is true. Beekeeping is an industry. It's a business. Billions of dollars in industry interest are in it all entwined in it from all these different places. And very little of that is reflective of ecology and uh, biodynamic farming and organic farming. It's more entwined with industry interests like what we already said of monoculture and pesticides. So um, I find that fascinating, that sort of mental gymnastics that people have to go through in order to understand that beekeeping is an industry and that people are doing it for money.
1: I think it's a constructed narrative, right? It's another constructed narrative through media that we have bought into, like the uh, narrative of family farming, uh, yeah, that you, the, the, the generic image of the happy family farm uh, and the farmer. Uh, is situated in that uh, that children get to read in children's books uh, when they are looking at a farm uh, I mean uh, so all of this is very we are socialized into this narrative
0: your book um, brought me great happiness well oh,
1: thank you you're very kind
0: and but also great rage uh-huh. um it reads like a who done it how we got here is based on all of these different players and not one being evil but just combined with human nature and business interests is how we got here so from that lens any suggestions
1: yeah i think i think we we have to focus on regenerating collaborations between agroecological minded farmers and small scale beekeepers in sort of mid level to mid scale to small scale Food growing sort of systems that's where the hope is I think
0: you're saying try and get back to where we were where small-scale operations mm-hmm. could have their own pollinators instead of
1: that is no going back sorry there is no that is not no, going back
0: okay. we can okay. only go forward yeah
1: we, can, we are we are living on a damaged planet yeah. We are living, in some sense, in the ruins of of late industrial capitalism. It's uh, and it's uh, and it's it's the edges, it's the crevices where the weeds are growing that are the crevices of resistance. And we need to nourish those crevices. Those are the edges, the margins from which a new world can grow. And I think in those margins is where connections are already happening that need to be nurtured, which is the kinds of connections between agroecological. Uh, farmers, organic farmers, beeke- small-scale beekeepers, um, systems that are mindful of those scales and ecologies. Nobody's saying don't make money. <laughs> we that those practicalities, but what's happening right now is obscene.
0: You know, the people that have held the ring, or the corporations that have held the rings for all this time, I believe that they need to be exposed because otherwise we'll never get to the truth if they're still holding it. A- holding us all basically hostage um, through misinformation and basically contrived ignorance. I want a lot of people to read this book because, number one, it exposes everything around our perceptions and what we hold as truths and and breaks it down, deconstructs them in a, an amazingly clear and concise way as to why we are eating poison in our food. Because, if bees are dying of this poison and pollinators are dying of this poison, we are too.
1: I agree completely. Simply taking away the ke- uh, neonics is going to just make the v- in, way for the next set of new chemicals. fluxor or uh, shivanto, you got all kinds of names with, of new chemicals already coming, right? Already here. Uh, and it's not like those chemicals are benign. And as you rightly point out, Terry, it's it's the... The bigger uh, issue, the food system, the chemically intensive agro ecosystem that we are uh, that we have been uh, made a part of, that has been imposed on us, and that we need to actively resist.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the way that I think that people can resist is to investigate what organic food is, so they understand that you know even though right now organic food standards are being uh, weakened by the um, by our government and by our policymakers. Um, to understand that organic means grown in clean chemical, uh, in clean soil. I was going to say chemical free, but regenerative agriculture, biodynamic means diversity. That food is that is grown in a diverse situation and not monoculture is likely to be the safer bet on your plate and that um organic is the standard that people should be going for in their food choices because again if you've if you're eating conventional food you know that apple likely killed something up orchard so i think it's just important that people understand that what they eat totally matters and uh Organic and regenerative agriculture are the answers.
1: Now, if you could only have the USDA subsidize organic and regenerative agroecological agriculture rather than the chemical-ridden stuff, that would make it much more affordable, right? I mean, because most of us actually cannot afford the prices of being able to eat fresh food. It's really so perverse that eating fresh food has become inaccessible to so many of us because of the price.
0: Yeah, and it is. It's so expensive to be an organic farmer. It's difficult uh, and it's a constant fight. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was the outsized influence of the almond and citrus industry on our food legislation. I don't know that you got into that that much, Uh, but you must have seen their influence on the different voices that speak about bees and pollinators, like Bee Informed Partnership and um, even Project Apis I've found anybody that's receiving almond industry money, I'm dubious of because they can't really speak. They can't bite the hand that feeds them. And, uh, but I find that Be Informed Partnership and Project APIS-M incredibly soft on systemic poisons and again they, they drumbeat the mite narrative so they just look so biased because they only look at one thing
1: and and they also Pam especially, uh, Project APIS-M has focused on uh, foraging narrative as well uh, as a, as again as against pesticides so they've really, and the book documents some of this, they have they made a collaboration with Monsanto around providing um, uh, sort of native seeds, pollinator-friendly seeds to various almond growers. That was one program that they were trying to uh, institute um, and spent quite a bit of money on, I believe. Uh, and uh, But the narrative, the focus there was providing diverse foraging, pollinator-friendly forage amidst the almond monoculture uh, as a way to provide some respite for pollinating bees. Again, the focus was, focus was not on pesticides.
0: My issue is with um, the hedgerow people is that they don't, they don't explain how systemics are not going to be in those plants. They, they discuss the problem, but they don't talk about how systemics work, which is being drawn up from the surrounding soil and drawn into the hedgerow.
1: Yeah, this is uh, simply, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but um, a willing ignorance. And I don't know the motivations for that. I don't know the motivations, what, what motivations drive that. But it could simply be that here's money and resources available to provide diverse uh, plant forage, take it or leave it. Okay, we'll take it. Well, there's not much resources or political will available to really address the pesticide issue head on. So let's do what we can. That Maybe that's the motivation, I don't know. But we what we see is that the focus has really become around hedgerows and pollinator-friendly forage rather than addressing the pesticide issue. Now, it's not that they don't address, address the pesticide issue at all. You know, they've they've sp- uh, funded some graduate student work in some universities on some sm- uh, small uh, dissertation projects, uh, maybe looking at queen health and uh, neonicotinoids. But these are one-off things that have happened, nothing systematic.
0: And systematic is more just focusing on, um, again, mites. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating world we live in, isn't it?
1: <laughs> fascinating, indeed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Professor Sina, thank you so much. You're, um, again, your book is, is pivotal, and it's critical, and it's groundbreaking. And uh, I acknowledge you for creating such an amazing piece of work and research, and um, it's, uh, I, I want everybody to read it. This is the most important book I think you can read to understand what's happening with pollinators. You nailed it. You nailed it.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Terry.
0: I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening.